Is there anyone there? Hey, hello. Awesome, Allison. Thank you so much for your time. Good to see you. Thank you so much for having me um, on on the podcast. I'm like, this is, yeah, I'm just, I'm just super excited. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Awesome. Well, I'll try to keep it somewhat short and sweet because I know that it's, uh, it's Easter and I totally forgot when I was doing the scheduling. I just wanted to look at all the Sundays. So I, I appreciate your time there. So can we start at the beginning? Um, yeah. You, you mentioned that you when you were young, you, you were writing the moment you picked up the crayon and there was this wonderful moment in your life, I guess, that perhaps jumpstarted the journey was winning a competition at an early age, something that, that was uh, pivotal for you. Yes. So I, um, so I was always writing, drawing, creating everything. I remember, um, lying on the living room carpet with my mom with one of those huge huge like blank sketch pads and just drawing like these little yellow school buses and being like oh i can't wait and and then i get to school and i'm like oh i don't know if i like this um but so my my teacher just uh, i think it was it had to have been like first grade to write um a poem about something and i wrote this poem about my cat and everyone was impressed that it rhymed and I was like duh it rhymes it's a poem <laughs> um which which that you know and, and and hence I don't I don't always write verse I don't always write things that rhyme I don't always write form poetry um but then just getting to read on the morning announcements I was like oh this is something special that I can do that I that I enjoy that it's it's that unique combination of something that I feel like I've always had a proclivity toward and I really find like joy, joy in. Um, and then I, I shirked it for so long. I was like, I'm not writing. I don't want to do this. And I pursued a more like artistic um, or visual arts route. And oh. then I eventually was just by in some families, how there's like a grandfather who's a doctor and then the father becomes a doctor. And the, that happened in my life with philosophy majors. So, <laughs> I, so um, it's just uh, really serendipitous how that happened. I remember I was a junior in high school and I had, you know, the, this breakup and I was like, this guy I'm dating, he says he's an existentialist. And my, my father, who is a philosophy major, this is granted before I studied that was like, let me show you Plato. Like, let, let me, let, I, I don't think this guy knows what he's talking about, which um, like Plato to pacify a heartbreak. Like, I guess it's still working because of the chapbook, maybe. Yeah. <laughs> so. yeah and, I, and I noticed there's, there's so many beautiful um, references to, to that, um, to that discipline. And it's, it's fascinating that you had it from such an early age. So was your father actively doing that to you, like just saying, "Here's here's a little a little nugget of of wisdom here that uh, that might be applicable," or was this something that that was just like one thing at the right time? It was it was one thing at the right time, and I also think he he prided himself on raising me in the Socratic method, um, and was like, "Well, logically, if this happens, I'm like, ah, oh, like I just want to go." down the street and play with my friends. I don't need to know if all cats have legs and you know, those like those like little deductive reasoning um, things. So I think it was, I think I always gravitated toward ways of understanding the world that had that combination of like logic, but also there's so much, there's more than logic out there. Hmm. Did you, 
And was there a gap in your writing? Like you said, I'm, I'm going away from writing for a while because it's not the right thing for me. Or uh, how long was that period? Yeah. So I, I think I, I wasn't really, I, I always kept writing as something in my back pocket as something that I knew I could do when I needed. I knew that I could be an effective, like, um, like written and oral communicator. Um, I became, I became a teacher. So through roundabout ways, philosophy, and my other, my other undergrad major was Italian literature. Um, but then I ended up getting my undergrad thesis in, um, in philosophy and writing about racial reparations and collective responsibility. So I'm, I'm mixed Asian, I'm mixed Japanese, and my family was, um, part of my family was imprisoned in Thule Lake during World War II. Mm-hmm. So I find that with writing, it's, it's starting to like pull all of these things together. Like I'm working on a collection right now that addresses like transgenerational trauma and guilt and that still inheritability of responsibility through an identity lens in a different way. And sorry, this is a little bit off topic. No, but, this uh, is wonderful. This is wonderful because it, it just opens up so many questions and I'm fascinated by this topic also of, of the generational traumas that are passed down. And especially here, I, I mean, I'm in Wyoming and so we have Heart Mountain about a couple of hours away and it's, it's a just one of those reminders that's right there with you that this isn't something that that happened you know thousands of years ago this is something that happened a generation ago people's grandparents this is something that eats away at people and uh, i'm very curious um what your thoughts are on this or or how one can manage this through the arts i'm i forget the the name of the poet um, but I did a really great workshop with, there's a group in Philadelphia. Um, there's, there's a lit mag called Apiary, um, like the, the beekeeping, like Apiary. Um, and I did a really amazing workshop with um, Kai Davis. And we looked at magical realism as a way to rewrite stories and to reframe trauma and to create ways out that we didn't see at the time. So that's been really influential to me and in thinking about this other collection that I'm, that I'm, <laughs> that I'm working on, that I'm like frog leaping. Um, <laughs> but I, I realized like my grandfather isn't here anymore. Um, he didn't want to speak to me for the last 10 or so years of my life. There was a whole bunch really? of like fallout stuff. Oh, I'm yeah, sorry. Yeah. Um, it's okay. Thank you. But, yeah. um, but my, my great aunt is still around and I've picked up like little pieces and little threads and I'm like, can I secretly record auntie? And, um, and I've realized that me filling in the gaps with something that's, that's not factual is the task of the creative and is the task of um, people who survived to like be the next generation and the next generation. And that's a way to, it sounds cliche and kind of corny, like take ownership over our stories, but to make it something that doesn't control or, or doesn't really domineer um, over like your own experience that you can say, oh, this is a part of who I was, but it's not who I, who I am. Yeah. And that's, that's the, uh, the tragedy of it. Oh man. And I, I got to get some coffee in here. <laughs> what, time <is> it, <laughs> what time is it over there? You're, uh, you're in Philadelphia, right? Um, it technically in New Jersey, which we call like East Philadelphia. Oh, but, is that uh, right? Okay. Uh, yeah. I, I'm not, I'm not, this is not where I was, I was born and bred, but honestly, like New Jersey's not so bad. You're like, it's, so. it's okay. It'll, it'll do for now. Uh, yeah. 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 
Yeah. I am actually, I've been a Mexican in Wyoming for the longest time that, you know, I don't have a choice. This is home now. So coming back to the collection, if you want, we can kind of talk about that <laughs> re- yeah. real quick. But I, I, I love that. Um, just as a bridge here, you, you do a workshop on mythology as, as a, what, what was the name of it? So it's called uh, Mythology as Methodology. And it's um, so the way I, I realized I'm using Plato's Allegory of the Cave as a framework for this kind of love story, this kind of like exploration of what is there beyond a physical connection or an emotional connection? Like, is there anything metaphysical? Is there are these metaphysical connections that we have with people? You know, are there things that we can explain or describe? And that's OK. Like I, I always think of Hamlet, which I, I always like protested teaching, but uh, for, for like it's it's Hamlet's fine. Um, but there are more things in heaven and earth, Horatio, than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And just I think that being approaching the unknown with an agnostic wonder rather than with fear and paralysis is has just been a really great way to even just approach the everyday, not, not even to mention, you know, that the span of life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, I do love that, uh, that approach. And, and especially in the collection, it's, it's such a wonderful way to reach back into mm-hmm. a tradition that is, that is older than oneself. And it reading the collection, it felt perennial. It felt like you, you were someplace else and then still contemporary and i think that's what i really enjoyed about it i get hung up on a a lot of greek plays that was one of my major fascinations when i was uh learning theater and i'm I'm a theater kid so a lot of it kind of tends to go back to the theater education but feeling like you're part of a tradition uh does does it almost allow you to have a home um Mm -hmm. an artistic home just looking back at that lineage of thought uh, and, and the idea of philosophy, um, do you feel that kind of thing or, or is that something that as agnostics, we kind of have to say, okay, maybe, maybe not. I I don't know. Yeah. I mean, I think that that kind of perspective allows me to, to find home in so many different places and, and really describe it as like, there are soft places for my heart to land in so many different ways. And part of that's the comfort of philosophy and then the comfort of poetry and thinking of the comfort of oral tradition of reading a poem out loud, of reading a, a love poem out loud to the person who it it's written about, who doesn't even, you know, realize that that to at first. And then when they do, it's like, oh, that's a great expression to like <laughs> click like in my memory. But uh, yeah, so I think that finding feeling that these philosophical traditions kind of like taking them, taking the school of thought outside of the systems of power that it's served is something that I'm also interested in. Mm. And that kind of like deconstruction and that kind of turning things around. Well, what, well, like, can Plato be, can Plato be queer, non-binary, mixed race? Can, absolutely. Can, can we take, I mean, I mean, Sappho is always relevant. (laughs) So, yeah. And, I love that uh, because I, for a long time, I, I started feeling a bit guilty because, you know, as, as, theater, as a theater kid, my education is pl- primarily this fascination with, with Greek tragedies, with Aristotle and, and these models that allow us to, to use the framework to imbue, you know, with the things that we want to say. But there, there was that movement that started, which I'm very happy about. It's, it's just this idea that 
I guess, our classical frameworks, do they have a space for us? Is that really mm-hmm. what we should be, the, the lens that we should be using at in this day and age? And I, I do feel like that makes me feel a little bit more comfortable because for the longest time, I'm like, maybe I should try to find something that allows me to express myself without having to go to the old continent to, to find it. But I, mm-hmm. I love that this collection is proof that this is a framework like any other that you can use to express your, your otherness in so many beautiful ways. And I really applaud that. I think that is, that is the great victory of it. So coming to how you put this together, how this was assembled, how long did it take for you? Um, I think I started writing about it in probably 2018. Like I started having like some like shreds of poems, some like little pieces. And at that point I was, I wouldn't, I I would call it a practice, but there's no name for it. But I was, I was committing to writing something every day. It could be words. It could be full poems. A lot of my writing starts out as um, a stream of consciousness, like me writing the same line a couple different ways with different words and putting other ideas in like brackets and this kind of like mess that I kind of like put, put into, put, give it some kind of form, like shape, like the, I'm not going to use the sculpture metaphor, but <laughs> yeah, I, I, just I, I love, <laughs> I love the sculpture metaphor. I think it's very acceptable because it's, uh, it gets us closer to something. Um, I do appreciate the, the bracketing. I mentioned, you mentioned in an interview as well, uh, that that is sort of like a preferred method. And to me, it, it felt like Obviously, as a poet, you're saying something, but then the brackets come in and it's like a deeper level of honesty. At least that's kind of how I read it, where it's just like, oh, this allows me to go just a little bit further. I got my coffee. Awesome. Yes, I'm good. Amazing. <laughs> we have these angels helping us, right? Yeah, yeah. Bless my wife for putting up with me. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but that's, you know, are those techniques that, that you just kind of had with you or, or that you kind of found and you said, you know what, this is, this is something I'm going to steal now and this is mine. I always got in trouble when I was writing an English class for using too many parentheses, but I think it's because there's, there, there are like, I, I was always, so I always had a commitment problem with ideas because mm. I always was like, oh, but this could also be true. And so as like, mm. I guess as a philosophy person, like even like a multiple choice test, I'm like, why? Like, what? <laughs> like, like, it can't, it can't be like, no, because there are ways that we could even like, flex or move or like or like see a different facet of this other answer so so like i mean yeah school is not fun in that way um <laughs> but i think that um yeah just just seeing just seeing different different light in that way yeah yeah oh my goodness i hadn't thought about that like like you just going every time something like this happens thanks dad for putting this in my head, but it's, it's such a beautiful openness now where you can, you can just kind of look at the the world in such a unique way. Um, was there a poem in the collection that, that started it all for you that made you feel like this is the direction that this needs to go? Like the Eureka moment of, of the thing, or was it something that at the end of the day you said, Oh, here's the through line after I've written so many of them. I think it was like that, that first poem in the collection about, um, that it has the line like, but what does a philosopher know about love? And I and I'm yeah. and maybe quoting it. I don't have it in front of me, but but that kind of like Yeah. Um it's I, that concept. Yeah. I do have it right here. It is a prize for the gladiator in the midst of an earthquake. I love these titles. They they just absolutely floor me. <laughs> uh, <Thank you. laughs> they let's see here. 
regarding Heraclitus. How, can you can you tell me how to say that? <laughs> uh, I've I've always heard it Heraclitus, but it's Heraclitus. <laughs> you know, it's one of those things where you you see it all the time, and then and then we yep. have to say it, it's like I, I don't <laughs> yeah. know. Heraclitus, you can't ascend the same staircase twice, but really, what does any philosopher know about love? Um, so so this one, uh, did it come at the at the hands of a memory, or was it something that was constructed for you? Yeah, so it comes a little bit with a memory, like like this, and I think in that poem is like seismic moments shift the soul's tectonics, like these these things, like I'll never be the same after this, I'll never be the same after this conversation, I'll never be the same after this moment. And I was thinking of Heraclitus with that idea, you can't step into the same river twice. And because, because it's always, it's always changed. And, and then <laughs> yeah. that found its way into the Pocahontas song, which I'm almost quoting now, the river's always changing, always <laughs> yeah. coming. Um, but, and this is all, this is all like personal mythology then too, you know, mm. I know in a way, but, um, but, but it did. And thinking about like how things have an ontological, that ontological shift then at any, at any time and realize like, oh, I have a new state of being right now. And that brings up for me, like all the philosophy stuff, all the metaphysics stuff, the persistence of identity, like Am I an ab- aggregate? Am I just like little time slices? And mm. could I have blinked the universe into existence like five seconds ago? Maybe, but if but if so, then like, how do I make of who I was and who I am now? And what's my relationship to them? I think is what I was considering too. Yeah, and that's that's a lovely metaphor um, in terms of the in terms of your background too. And I wanted to ask you how you have you always felt like you have been comfortable in your own skin from the get-go or was this a process of of inventing and clarifying and and sculpting away at your own identity that that because i feel like some of that comes through in the in the poetry collection but i also feel that culturally you know Mm -hmm. um some of us come from these these traditions that might you know frown upon certain things uh, about ourselves do you feel like that took a long time for you to feel comfortable in who you are because you come across incredibly certain and that's a that's a beautiful thing lovely thing um but uh as a recovering catholic who has a lot of <laughs> things to deal with um and, and is more agnostic you know i consider myself an absurdist agnostic so i just have just things constantly happening i'm curious how that journey looks for you I think so I there are always there are aspects of my identity that I've always that I've always known like I've always known like um like my my like ethnic genealogy I guess and like the the Japanese side traces back to like like samurai and there were these like there was like a Korean princess somewhere like which is like this deathbed confession like very interesting but then I grew up in a place where I was, um, I, I was born in California and then my parents moved to the East coast to be closer to their parents. And I grew up as one of, um, three, um, like kids of color, uh, in my, in my graduating class or, or three, like femme, like kids of color. And I never, I, I'd known that I could fit in, in some ways, but I was always apart. I think of that, um, of that line in Gatsby of being like within and without. Mm. And I, I really, I, I mean, in undergrad, they wouldn't let me join like 
back way back then and was called like the minority club because I'm, I'm a quarter Japanese. Hmm. Um, and I think a lot of my writing has been with reconciling, like, how do you, how do you understand like your identity as a percentage, or then do you understand it in terms of who had an influence on you growing up and how you dealt with the fallout of trauma from yeah. those identities? Yeah. Um, so I, and I, I briefly mentioned like my other undergrad, undergrad major was Italian literature. I'm not Italian. I'm not, I'm not like I, you know, yeah. at all, but a lot of people around me growing up were, and I had a lot of like really early mentors and like friends in the neighborhood, like, like older, like women in the neighborhood, I would just like go to their houses and they would, they would like feed me and my friends. And we would just, and they were all like these wonderful, like these wonderful Italian women. And so that's what I ended up pursuing. And um, in, in some senses, um, that's what my, I guess, part of my literature background is, but yeah. yeah. I think when I think about my undergrad thesis with racial reparations and the inheritability of responsibility, which is interesting because it was under um, Dr. Catherine Rogers, who focused on uh, like cat, like medieval philosophy, like Catholic oh. philosophy. And I took Anselm's part of Anselm's St. Anselm, the philosopher, his writing on the inheritability of responsibility and guilt as a uh, part of my thesis mm. too. So it has all these interesting, like, threads and my mom was raised Catholic, but they wouldn't let her join the church in Pennsylvania because, um, because of who we were. Wow. Um, so yes, yes. I, New Jersey is great, but, <laughs> I, I, but like, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to say anything negative about other states. Oh no, no, you're fine. You're fine. Um, <laughs> but I, I get it. You know, I, it's, it's kind of, uh, interesting that we're having this conversation now on Easter Sunday and it just, it's hitting all the, uh, all, all the fields over here. Can you tell me a little bit about your, your educator life? How does that life lend itself to, to the process of writing better or refining that writing? Yeah. So I, I'm just absolutely like so lucky to be able to teach like what I teach and to have a lot of, um, a lot of freedom to create courses that, I mean, I created like a philosophy course. I created a mindfulness and meditation course. I do an after-school restorative, uh, restorative practice, alternative discipline program, like yoga club stuff. But I think in terms of teaching, like I was brought to my current school. Um, I, I taught for two years in West Philly public school, and I was brought to my current school, which has um, a really great, like a, a lot of a lot of diversity in terms of race, socioeconomic status. Um, we have lots of uh, lots of little queer babies who I love so much. Um, and I'm, I also run the multicultural student union now. Mm. Um, so, but in terms of writing and the way that that's influenced that, I find that having spent now over 10 years teaching AP Lit, like talking to my students about like, what is this word? What is this word? Why is the comma here? Why is the, mm. like, and, and even the, the, the difference that an article can make an A or a the, like I think of Robert Frost's um, <clears throat> The Span of Life. It's, it's just too much. It's the old dog barks backwards without getting up. I can remember when he was a pup <laughs> and just, oh, it's so, I'm getting chills, but it's like just, the difference yeah. between, yeah, the old dog, the, the singular versus a versus my versus, um, you know, and anything else. And just the importance of that article, the importance of a line break. And I think that careful attention in in really, you know, example, in like amazing poetry and writing and helping my students discover that and really using an inquiry method has helped 
um, me and my writing, looking at it with curiosity and asking the why, which is, if that's not a philosopher's question, I don't know what it is. <laughs> oh, lovely, lovely. So what was it like for you during COVID as an educator, as a, as a teacher? Have you come out of the, on the other side of that? And I wish that we were fully on the other side of that, but have you, have you come out of the other side feeling like it's hardened you in a way, like hardened your writing in a way? I feel like it's, it's done the opposite. I feel like it's just really softened a lot of who I am as an educator, as a writer. And, and I've always told my students they're, they're like, they're like people first, like you're a person first, you're a person first and second, like you're, you're a student. So I think that over, over COVID teaching, over the, that whole chaos, it really being a good medium for problem solving in terms and getting really specific about like, okay, what does it mean to be an educator? Mm. Um, and really to see what was missing in my classes. And I, and I missed the classroom and more, even more so that like w- the piece I was missing was community. So there was no, there was no community there. I, I love standing in the hallway in between classes and getting to know students who, who I've never had in class and who I'll never have in class. And just having those like little interactions, like community is so, is like incredibly important to me. So I was thinking, like, how can I create this? Mm. Um, and I'm not sure if I, I don't know if there's a, a blanket like successful or not successful, but I felt <laughs> like there are things that I had to brainstorm ways of, um, like for all of my classes I had, we used Google Classroom. I used um, a daily check-in and a daily agenda and then daily check-in. It was, it was a silly question. It could be like, how full is your cup? Mm-hmm. Or you're something that flies. What are you? Or um, your day your day is a pizza. What's on it? <laughs> and that enabled kids who who ne- who would never speak in class, much less like speak on speak on <laughs> Google Meet, speak on Zoom, <laughs> um, allowed me to have a conversation with them that was just a little written like back and forth, like in a medium. It, it was almost like texting, but it's all on Google Classroom. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me to build a relationship and have a banter with them, um, and then to to as much as I can create community. And that's something that I still do now that we're back in the classroom. Like the kids, like they still, I'm like, you're not sick of daily check-in. You're not sick of daily agenda. They're like, no, we want to talk about pizza and rocks. I'm like, okay. um, so it's just a good way to like, for me to maintain the, the people first, like the people first aspect, like all the little hearts in the room, you yeah. know, all, all the little sets of lungs, like breathing this air, you know, together. Oh, that's, that's powerful. Do you have a, a moment from your your teaching life that has taught you something that that has made you a better human being a better artist is there specifically one that sticks out yeah my um so my first my first probably day teaching in student teaching there was a student who had his head down on the desk and i was like okay like okay like classroom management like oh, okay like you, you like you can't do that and and then i realized like I'm like, how can, how can anyone learn and be who they are when they're, when they're tired, when they're hungry, when they don't have those, like, and granted there are problems with like Maslow's hierarchy of needs, but like, if those things aren't there, like, how can, if a student doesn't feel safe, like, how can you expect them to learn? So how can we best like create the most supportive environment and community really Mm -hmm. for, for students? And I think about that in terms of, in terms of ways that that's influenced me as a human being is I think it's enabled me to have to be 
be more compassionate for myself and for and for others and realizing like if I want to write like I have to like I got to do my laundry at some point um, <laughs> or like if I <laughs> if I, I want to write I need to I need to like take care of take care of this like self I need to like get up and like do my little yoga practice or I need to make sure that I'm hydrated or and and like same thing in my classroom like a student needs to go to the bathroom just go just go just go just go mm. like not that I don't listen to admin rules because I absolutely do if they're listening. Um, but, it, but it's like I have like and my my wonderful like mom like bought like granola bars to keep in my classroom closet. Kids hungry, get a granola bar. Mm. You know, you need water, go get water. You need to go to the bathroom. I'm in the middle of talking. Like I don't care. Go to the bathroom. Like I'm not gonna. I'm never gonna stand in the way of a student getting their 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 personal like needs met. And if there's a way that I can facilitate that in a way, then that's then that that's what that's what we do in like our classroom so oh bless People. you yeah uh wish a lot more teachers thought like that uh because you hear stories you know of the, of those who just they become very militaristic in in mm. their aims to uh <laughs> to shape young minds i guess um well when, it comes down to like i'm yeah. not teaching english i'm teaching children you know so mm -hmm. i think that's what's been really central so rather than just saying this is about this subject this is about learning to be a human being this is bigger than you know than just one i guess one topic or one subject right everything's connected everything mm -hmm. intersectionality absolutely mm -hmm. so in your own life self-care and and getting stuff done as an educator you folks are so busy i mean i can't even imagine there's dear friends of mine who who are educators and it just boggles my mind the stuff that um, that has to be done how does writing happen within your your day what does your day look like that allows for writing it's a great question because it's taken me years and years and years to find to find balance and create boundaries like i when i started teaching i was spending all my time outside of outside of school doing stuff for school and i realized at some point that there's always more to do there's always more to grade and there's always more to plan for and i think that now i've reached a point where i when I'm at school, I focus entirely as much as I can, like on on them. Like I try to stay off of Instagram, except on lunch um, <laughs> or Twitter or whatever. Um, but I I'm I'm planning, I'm grading, I'm uh, I'm doing things in my classroom when I'm there. Um, and then when I leave, I I say like this is I, I right now we're approaching like spring break next week, so I have my away message thing on on my email response, and mm -hmm. and I tell my students I'm like you have to create boundaries. Like are there like and it's hard to do. Granted, I'm, I'm more than twice their age now. So a day for me looks like, especially with 3030 with like national like poetry month, I'm trying to write 30 mm. poems to flesh oh, yeah. out this chap that I have to a full manuscript. That's something else I'm working on. But I've been taking my personal computer and I usually get in maybe like 720 and I'll sit and I'll try to get the poem out before my students come in. Um, mm. And then I'm lucky that I have first period prep. So then as soon as it's eight o'clock, I'm like, okay, like lap, personal laptop goes away. Time for like time to shift, shift this in, shift into this. And I, I don't want to say role. I don't want to say mode because mm -hmm. I think that one other thing that I've learned is like, I can't fracture myself into different selves. I'm not yeah. like, okay, here I am as partner. Here I am as mm -hmm. teacher. Here I am as yoga teacher. Here I am as poet. Here I am as daughter. Here I am as you know, all of those, 
Yeah. All of those are, are connected. And I think that yeah. that was an early philosophical mistake that I, that I made. And, mm-hmm. um, thinking that that would lead to, uh, anything other than fracturing of whatever metaphysical is yeah. there too. So yeah. and I, uh, man, that's a, that's a lovely lesson because it, it feels like it took me to like actually get into my mid thirties to realize you gotta, you can't just pretend or play and break things apart in your life. Uh, there's so many times that I can pinpoint to where, where that makes me feel like if only you had been yourself, your entire self, things would have been a lot easier. It's, it's funny how that works, right? Because you segregate parts of yourself for certain situations or certain modes or whatever. And it feels like you're just not getting anywhere or you're, you're really selling yourself short. And at least for me, my life started getting better the moment I stopped doing that. So that's, such a wonderful takeaway there. Back to the collection, because I want to make sure that we we include the collection a little bit here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> See, I, I thank you for coming, but we do go all over the place. So I think that's kind of the, the style of the show. <laughs> um, what's it been like working with 30 West Publishing on this? Like an absolute dream. Like just absolutely, there's, they have such a great established presence in that like the Philly-ish orbit. Um, mm. But Josh, who's the editor-in-chief, has been like just phenomenal in terms of encouragement, in terms of like all the social media stuff, in terms of being professional, in terms of then also like supporting his supporting his writers, like coming to like, I did a featured um for a reading series in February. And like Josh came to that. Like and oh, cool. just being being unrelentingly supportive of us and like juggling all of these all of these projects i actually i have a, a chapter of prose in an anti-remo um novel so it's and it's like anti like national write a novel month <laughs> that's 30 writers each writing one chapter in a novel so oh cool and yeah so that that's coming out at the end of may um but me being involved like with that and seeing them juggle um seeing them juggle like all of these pieces coming out and still having contests and doing a cover art contest and just there's so much love and belief in writing and words and writers Mm -hmm. um that if if for any i i don't know what it's like for anyone else with other chat books and other experiences but this has just been like the most wonderful and welcoming place to to land and then to jump off from (laughs) No, that's wonderful. And shout out to, uh, I'm very great. Yes. Shout out to 30 West for, for being awesome to work with and for sharing the poetry collection in advance. Very grateful for that. It's, it's really been an absolute treat. And for you, you've done some readings. How has that been? Because for me, you know, like when I think of poetry, I, I almost separate them from the performance aspect of it just because of the theater nerd in me, like it, it needs to become like this huge production but for for poets to get up there on that stage, what does it take to to capture the the poem when you're standing up there? I think that that's something that I really lean on my kind of like the teacher aspects of myself because I've mm-hmm. been reading literature out loud to my students for for I think fifteen years. Mm-hmm. Um, when I taught in Philly, I we didn't have enough copies of To Kill a Mockingbird and. 
I read it aloud to all of the sections of English that I had that year. So I'm always like reading things to my students. I'm reading Beowulf. I'm taking the part of Macbeth when no one wants to read uh, for him in class, which I I love (laughs) Macbeth. I was like, there's a chat book maybe. Um, But, but I think it comes, it comes from that. Um, And I definitely agree with you. There's a difference between the art of like spoken word and the, and the reading of a poem from a book um like i've taken my students to poetry out loud and just like the memory watching these other these kids like memorize poems and their performance is like spectacular um but i also enjoy hearing poets read their own work and where they're putting emphasis and pause um i i've heard i haven't i haven't watched it yet but i've heard that ocean Wong is doing some phenomenal things with like matching how do you match enjambment on the page to something that's said out loud. And especially mm-hmm. as someone who writes using so many brackets and parentheses, I have I have poems that are different, whether you read them with the brackets or not. I, I really have to thank like the practice of teaching, yeah. I think. Yeah. We didn't talk about yoga, <laughs> 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 which we maybe should have started with. Um, <laughs> what what does it mean to have a, a practice like that for for your quality of life, for your writing? It's, it seems like such a foundational thing that maybe we should all embrace. If you could make a pitch for this, this kind of thought, meditation, yoga practices, what would it be? <sighs> well, as a, as a pitch, um, I would say that this is the way that you make sure that when you're going deep into yourself for your writing, that you don't get lost. And the way that you create a foundation and a home within yourself, because that's something that's always with you. Um, I always think like I spend the most number of heartbeats with myself. Like, why shouldn't I be the love of my life? Like, why shouldn't mm. I pour that back into into myself? And then that is generative. Like, love is generative and expansive. It doesn't mean, you know, the love I put into myself isn't something that's finite in that way. So that mm. enables me to show up for my students, show up for my partner, show up for my family, show up for my friends, knowing that I'm on stable ground internally myself. So. Oh, wonderful. Wonderful. I just got a couple more because I want to be respectful of your time. Um, but uh, what are some works that still resonate with you that uh, uh, some works that not only informed how you view the craft, but really just made you go, oh, shit, that's a really awesome poem. That's Yeah. So I, I mean, I've always, my dad will tell you this too. Like I, he showed me um, when I, when I was little, um, Emily Dickinson's hope is a thing with feathers. And he said, like, I just gasped <laughs> and I didn't realize that poems. And I don't remember that moment. I only re- remember it through his like memory and retelling of it, but I've always had that place for Emily Dickinson and, and her use of like capitalization and dashes. And she just, am I allowed to use perfect? Can I use profanity? Oh, of course, on this? of course you go right ahead. <laughs> you just, she just does like what, like whatever the fuck she wants. Like, yeah, this is capitalized. Yeah, yes, capitalized. Illuminate. Yes, cap- capitalize and in the middle of, you know. So that kind of that kind of freedom. I also think of like when I think of my tenth grade English teacher who like, like was was fine, but the poetry he he did with us. We did um, Gwendolyn Brooks, um, to be in love, which I'm pretty sure is an epigraph of mm-hmm. um, from this collection and just her use of line breaks. And I I think the last 
one of the poems that really resonated with me that this teacher also introduced me to, which looking back, I was like, oh, I don't know if we should have read that, but I'm really glad we did. We read um, Amiri Baraka's uh, preface to a 20 volume suicide note. Mm. And there were there are four lines in, in the middle that I used for like a senior art project when I was still doing a lot of visual art. And I just a uh, secret, I just got them tattooed on my legs. So, um, but they are, and each night I count the stars and each night I get the same number. And when they will not to be counted, I, when they will not come to be counted, I count the holes they leave. Oh man. So, yeah. I love that you can recite that from memory. That's, that just boggles my mind. Uh, <laughs> we haven't spoken about guitar playing. We haven't spoken about visual art too much, but in yeah. so many words, in so many words, what, it, what does it mean to be a multi-hyphenate of craft and, and creativity? Because you, uh, I love that pursuit. I love that you, you go to other places and perhaps nourish your writing with that. Why do you do what you do, you know, in terms of the, the visual stuff and music? So I think that that helps me. I think it all, it all informs, oh, I don't like that word choice. It, I, I would, <laughs> at first, it, it informs everything else, but I think it nourishes everything else. Mm. So part of the limited edition um, for my chapbook, I got an old Polaroid camera, somehow very cheap. And I, I just went around the city. I went around my neighborhood. And when I city, I mean, Philadelphia. Um, and I just took a bunch of Polaroids and I'm using, I'm calling them reverse ekphrastics because then I took about 60 lines from the chap and cut them up and matched lines to the Polaroids, but mm. not necessarily sometimes two lines that aren't even in the same poem to create something new from oh, that. Beautiful. So yeah. there's an element of collage. Thank you. An element yeah. of collage, an element of visual an element with like, I went around with on two separate occasions with two really dear friends who are amazing visual artists and musicians in their own right. So I think it's about being around creative folks in as many ways as, as possible. And I don't know, dreaming of one day, like bringing back the salon where we all just like mm. come together and do and do our art and then have a really fabulous meal and <laughs> how it's, it's so, it's so generative, generative in that way. Oh, that's a wonderful thing to look forward to. It's, it's pretty great. Um, I had, okay, let's, let's do two more and then we'll call it great. good. What do you think? Because <laughs> <laughs> I get carried away. Um, I was going to ask you about place. Because reading the collection, I, I just felt that there was this just wonderful sense of longing and, and distance and, and sort of like there were these, these phrases that um, made me feel like maybe there was, there was a desire to go someplace else or to, I guess, bridge a, a gap. Is that what Philadelphia feels to you, like a, like a placeholder for a different location, a physical location, or is this, is this where you get your sense of place? So a sense of places, I feel like such a challenging question because mm. I, I was born on the West Coast. I was born in California and I feel, I feel like as much as like when you have like a wine from a certain place, there's a terroir, there's a feeling of like having that wine in that place and being from there. But I feel in many senses uprooted from there and back on the East Coast. And I think that existing in so many um so many places and having so many intersection intersecting aspects of my identity kind of if i look at it from abundance rather than scarcity if i look at it from 
there are pieces of me in so many places or so many places are part of me rather than this is not my singular home. Mm. Then it feels again, like really expansive rather than, um, rather than confining. Mm -hmm. So there are parts of me on the West coast at like my aunt's house or, and there are places there, there are parts of me in, um, the place where like some of the, the chapticks place and interactions that I've, the places where I've had interactions with this person who may or may not exist. Mm -hmm. Um, <laughs> and, and what it's, and what it's, what it's like i mean we're we're going to go to the beach today to see my partner's parents and i always like run towards the ocean saying like mom i'm home um so then there's that very like if we're thinking astrology very like cancerian like take me to the mm. ocean um kind of feeling too so i think that like and there are places i way back in undergrad of spending like time in rome there was a part of me that mm. felt so at home there, even though like I'm not Italian <laughs> at all. <laughs> I, if you dropped me there, could I get along with the language still? Yeah, probably. Um, but I think that seeing place as somewhere else that you can kind of like, th there's a, um, I forget the poem, but there's a metaphysical poet who wrote about sending out these like invisible filaments, connecting them to someone else. Ooh. And I think I think of people and places in that way too, of this invisible mm -hmm. thread connecting. Mm -hmm. Absolutely wonderful. Um, last question. What would you say writing in the arts and all of this wonderful creativity that you've brought into your life, um, what has that done for your quality of life? I think it's, I think not only joy for myself and for the people who I get to share it with, but also being able to look back at myself with love and I don't want to say something as cliche as like love and non-judgment, but to see that there are so many multitudes that I can enjoy and, and explore. And it helps me feel like being someone who is in, in many ways, like, you know, mortal being tapped into something so much larger and I think it's, it's a conduit to, I don't want to say like a conduit to the divine, but a conduit to whatever still persists. Like mm. even when I'm not here anymore, even when the, the, the last copy of my book or whatever, like turns to ashes, there's still something that I played a part of, I think of, and I'm going to paraphrase this, I think in response to what does it matter? Walt Whitman said something along the lines of, the self-identity that the powerful play goes on and you will contribute a verse. Mm -hmm. And I think of that sense of contribution and community in the larger sense of whatever metaphysical exists. So I think it brings me comfort. What a lovely note to end on. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Allison, for your time. Thanks for the work that you've done for this beautiful collection here. When does it come out? So it is available for pre-sale and I'm pretty sure it will be shipping May 8th, 9th-ish. So around Mother's Day, which <laughs> is this my firstborn? I don't know. Um, but that, seems, that all seems appropriate. So Yeah, good, good timing all around. I thank you for your time, Allison. This has been absolutely amazing. I wish we could talk about all the other things. Uh, that's, <laughs> that's what happens with folks who are just, uh, you know, doing so many amazing things. Uh, there are so many directions to go. Uh, but I wish you the best on this collection in life and craft. And of course, uh, anytime there's something else going on, I'd love to catch up with you again. But uh, I wish you the best and thanks for your time. 
Likewise, thank you so much. This has been wonderful. Take care.